0: Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Inside Facebook Mobile, an interview podcast by Facebook, yes, that's a Facebook in all caps, where we talk to engineers who work or worked on our family of apps. My name is Pascal and joining me here in the studio for the last recording of the year and the last episode of the decade, the IFBM OG, the first co-host of this very podcast and a former teammate of mine. It's Emil. Hey, I feel like I've been here before. (laughs) As always, we have some great interviews lined up for you. The two remaining recordings from DroidCon UK 2019, where the actual videos are still missing, but we will keep you updated when this changes, or if that changes. Hopefully. Yeah. In these, I talk with Aziz about benchmarking UI, and then with Pasquale and Andy, who just as Aziz work on the Litho team about threading on Android, so stay tuned for this. I'm also well aware of the staggering lack of diversity in this episode, and that's completely on me, but scheduling in the holiday time is quite tricky, and I promise that this will change again with the next episode in 2020. We will also briefly talk about what's new in Facebook open source, but before we get to all of this, Emil, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Um,
1: This studio didn't exist when when we started this podcast, uh, what, a year, year and a half ago?
0: (laughs) Studio, yeah. years ago? We had um, some microphones in a meeting room. Yeah, and we were always
1: going to the meeting rooms and clapping in every meeting room to check the echo. Mm-hmm. This is a lot better. <laughs>
0: Walking across the office, taking some noise samples from the different rooms, figuring out which one had the hissiest aircon, which TVs in there had for some reason fans in them, which we couldn't shut off, which made recording in them quite difficult. It was fun, but this is uh, this is a lot better, so I'm happy to be back. What have you been up to since you left
1: Facebook? Uh, well, coming back for lunch from time to time. Uh, I've
0: seen you quite a few times in the office. Yeah, the actually, lunch is great. It's really uh, difficult to get rid of you. anybody's
1: thinking of joining Facebook for the lunch. Uh, that's a good reason. Uh, No, I've been working on uh, developer tools outside of Facebook. Yeah, it's been fun working on uh, what we call Visly, and it's a visual way to develop components, basically. So um, moving from a team building component frameworks to a company building uh, developer tools for building components. So I'm all in on components.
0: Fantastic. How long did you actually work at Facebook on that (sighs) stuff?
1: Uh, well, what was it 85% no I don't know what percentage I came up to but um I uh I was here for a little under three years
0: oh okay and you basically just worked on components related things I worked you? on, on li- rit- like oh, Litho
1: Yoga h- when it was originally just called components for Android yeah I like that name uh then Yoga originally CSS layout and then uh f-
0: Flipper Flipper originally
1: redacted um <laughs> So I basically just like, changed a bunch of names. That's all I did. Right. Refactored package names. That was probably 20% of my time here.
0: Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. Yep. Especially when it comes to open sourcing. That's basically yeah. the majority of the work. But it's also pretty fantastic that all of this stuff that you worked on during your time here is effectively on GitHub now.
1: Yeah. I mean, I ensured I that for some of the things. Um, I mean... To be fair, Yoga was on GitHub like seven times, and now it's only on GitHub once. <laughs> but that was also part of me ensuring, like, let's just have one place for it. I
0: am going through that exact same dance at the moment for FBJ&I, the library uh, yeah. that glues together our J&I stuff with all the Facebook open source libraries. I mean, the oh, funny yeah.
1: thing with FBJ&I and Yoga is because they're, uh, Yoga uses FBJ&I, and Yoga was copied in not anymore million- actually.
0: What I think we are preempting some open source news here, um, but Yoga has actually moved away from FPJNI as their JNI mechanism and just right. uses pure JNI now, which means it's slightly smaller. Okay,
1: that may that that makes sense. That said, though FPJ&I is really cool, and if you don't have a very size constrained environment, use it. But yeah, it had this thing where like yoga was copied in like seven places and FBJ and I was copied in every place yoga was copied in plus like seven more. So I can see your pain.
0: I, I counted about 19 occurrences in the Facebook repositories on GitHub alone.
1: Yeah. And they're like semi-forks of each other where they're not all up to date. It's yeah. good luck with that.
0: Yeah. That's fun. Especially then when you try to mix different Facebook open source libraries and then, oh yeah, this library actually already exists in a different one.
1: Yep been there.
0: Yeah, so hopefully this will all get better in 2020. So talking a bit more about this stuff that you've been up to, what other Facebook libraries do you actually still work in your day-to-day work now?
1: Oh, we use a ton uh, from Facebook, actually. So we use, we're mostly building on on web, uh, but we do build for mobile as well. When I say mobile, it's like Android and iOS and React Native. We see the React Native as a separate platform. Right. But so obviously there we use React Native, but our whole app is also built on React and GraphQL, as well as, um, I'm thinking, probably m- multiple other things. But the, the big ones are definitely uh, React and GraphQL.
0: Any Jest tests in there?
1: Oh, yeah, 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 right. That's the one. A ton. <laughs> Not as many as I would like, but, but yes, all our tests are Jests. Jests? Yes. Jests. And then uh, we just need some
0: more Jests. Yeah, I I had no insider knowledge. I was just Yeah, but those
1: are the big ones, right? And uh, what are the other common ones for the web? I'm so out of the loop in this because now I'm doing a bunch of management as well. Um,
0: (laughs) I feel your pain.
1: It's not pain. I like it. Uh, We have a good team. So so super happy to do that. Uh, But yeah, we use a ton of Facebook open source things. And there's a bunch of open source things that I wouldn't say are Facebook open source things, but... There's a ton of Facebook contributors behind it. Yeah. You have everything from like Webpack and Babel, which have a lot of Facebook contributions to them. Yeah. And I think Facebook is pretty good in that way. They contribute to a bunch of non-Facebook projects, and they also have a ton of external contributors to Facebook organization projects. Some do it better than others, uh, but specifically within the React community, like React, Uh, Create React App and React Native, they have a ton of non-Facebook contributions, which is really great.
0: Right. We've recently been working very closely together with the React Native folks for Flipper, and it's really fantastic how seriously they take open source. So for them, this isn't just a second-class citizen or sometimes third class, but this is forefront for everything they do. And this has been really helpful for us because, quite frankly, we hadn't considered open source as the main users of our product, but their whole mindset around this has been really useful for us
1: yeah i think this is something that changed on the team maybe two years ago and it's very obvious um and i think it was i mean obviously being biased not being at facebook anymore it's obviously a good change um yeah I, there's definitely downsides focusing on open source um like some things may go slower internally but there's also a huge upside to be had um in terms of many different things.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay, shall we move on to some open source news? Cool. There is one new episode of The Diff, which I briefly teased about, I think, two episodes ago. So Joel Marcy talks with Eric Nakar. Gawa, um, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, about Libra. They discuss how Libra works, how validator nodes work, what parts of Libra are open sourced, and the differences between Libra and Calibra, and much more. So if this is your kind of thing, then do search for the diff in your podcast player of choice, or go to at the diff podcast on Twitter. So quick question, do I need to know everything about blockchains to listen to this episode? Uh, No, I definitely do not know everything about blockchain, and I think it made sense to me. Awesome, because I think that's the problem with a
1: lot of those podcasts. They just jump into assuming everybody kind of knows how blockchain is implemented.
0: Yeah, the the whole blockchain space can get a little culty, and if you're not well-versed in their particular vocabulary and way of thinking, then a lot of stuff that you read or listen to makes absolutely no sense. This is luckily not one of those things. Awesome,
1: and I'm super excited that It's all written in Rust. Rust is really cool. We're using Rust as well. Yeah, more Rust.
0: (laughs) Yeah, brings us actually quite nicely to the next topic here, which is that Facebook and Microsoft are partnering on remote development. Emil, I'm curious, what's your editor of choice these days? VS Code. Fantastic. This is exactly the editor that this is about. And for Facebook, In particular, this is quite useful because we are very polyglot. You mentioned Rust. We definitely use that. What else? Erlang, of course. Haskell, sure. Prolog. I honestly don't know, but probably. Probably. Yeah. So you need to have some sort of IDE, some sort of editor that works with all of this together, especially in an environment where you can't just run everything on your laptop. And Microsoft, I think earlier this year, may have been around May, released the first version of an extension for VS Code where they allowed connecting to via well, SSH, I believe, to a different host, and then at least inspect the files there, but also run your local extensions uh, partly on that side. That's quite important if you have something like here at Facebook Flow, that's big type checker which runs remotely and has to transmit this information back to your client. So normally this works via LSP, the language server protocol, but you need to at least have the correct infrastructure in place to make all of this work.
1: I mean, it also probably goes into things like hack, where I I don't actually know, but I would assume Facebook is the main user of it and the main I'm driver. I'm pretty sure we are, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but so, so it needs to be able to have the extensibility and so forth to be able to handle custom in-house languages. Because, I, I mean, Facebook has open-sourced uh, both as research projects more, but also like real languages being used like hack. Yeah. And uh, those need to be able to be used as well as big open-source projects. Right.
0: Reason is another one of those.
1: Right. And there's that, oh, what was the name? I think Skip, which was a research project that was uh, released. And uh, those I, kinds of things need to be explained. I know it went through well. a bunch
0: of renames,
1: so I'm not yeah, even sure so if that was the last settled. name. But uh, it was definitely released at some point, yeah.
0: at least. Definitely. Yeah, uh, it's, it's quite weird to me just admitting that VS Code is actually my main editor, too. You have to know I basically grew up in a very anti Microsoft household. So, yeah, now I'm using a Microsoft editor on linux this is still profound microsoft weird to me.
1: is cool nowadays they are pretty cool man. i like them uh they're doing really cool things um yeah go for it and i vs code for people who haven't tried it and might be against kind of oh it's electron it's heavy it's definitely the best electron app i've ever used they've done a ton of things to optimize it
0: hold on you worked on flipper yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh okay, so it's the second best electron <laughs> app I've ever used. Sorry about that. Um, but they've done a ton of things to optimize kind of startup speed and so forth. Yeah, is it as fast as like Vim? No, but I can quit it with com- with command Q. So that's a benefit.
0: <laughs> it's it's definitely easier to exit. Yes, but I, I'll give you that. I I still use NeoVim quite a lot when I just added a one of bug or something like this. Right. Right. Okay, that brings us to the interviews. Once again, there's plenty of background noise because DroidCon insisted on playing music in the halls and there was no way of escaping this. But you all seem to like it. And it's only for about 20 minutes in two chunks. So we speak with Aziz, Andy and Pasquale about different topics. And when we're back, I'll talk a bit with Emil here about his thoughts on the interviews. Fantastic. Sitting with me here now is Aziz, a software engineer on the... Android UI Frameworks team. Did I get this right this time? Yes. Okay, fantastic. How are you doing?
3: Um, Not bad, not bad. Actually, I I had my talk today in the morning, so... Relief um, that it's over? Yes, yes.
0: Okay, then let me just ask you a few simple questions about this. Sure. It was a super interesting talk about UI benchmarking, and benchmarking sounds like a pretty well-understood kind of concept. Mm -hmm. You have a function, you run it a few times, you probably run some sort of statistic analysis to figure out is it actually faster than the last time, and that's it. But when it comes to UI, this is actually a completely different ballgame. So you mentioned that for UI benchmarks, you focus on two goals. Can you remind us of what those are?
3: Yeah, sure. So if you take it at a high level, using benchmarks should help avoiding regressions to slip through production code. Also, you can use benchmarks to locally iterate on this and proactively improve your performance of your UI rendering of your UI component. Right.
0: So basically the same kind of concept, but used in two very different contexts. Yes. So one tool you brought up there is SysTrace, which a lot of Android developers are familiar with. But can you explain how this is used in in the context of benchmarks?
3: Yes. So when doing benchmarks, we don't use SysTrace directly. So it's more like... Uh, you can run benchmarks that will generate this trace and right. then analyze, like, oh, what is making things slower? And then you can, like, address those issues. But when doing benchmarks, it's doing just, like, repetitive measurements and comparing to, like, historical values. And I see.
0: So it's more about a debugging tool
3: once you hit a regression or get a number that you don't fully understand. Correct, correct. So... Benchmarking gives you a signal that, hey, this thing's regressed and you need to go and uh, see like what actually made it worse.
0: So in your talk, you bring up the example of benchmarking a profile header. If I were tasked with doing this, I wouldn't even know what the output of this would be. So what are the numbers or the number that you try to achieve when you write a benchmark for this?
3: Yeah, sure. So our focus is... Uh, UI rendering. So the profile header appears on the timeline on every story. So whenever you scroll and uh, the header comes up to the screen, there Mm -hmm. are a lot of things that's happening. So when we render the profile header on the timeline in Facebook application, there are a lot of things happening uh, during that time. Like when you scroll the story that has a header, um, it needs to first create a UI element and mm-hmm. then bind it to the data model and then measure and layout. And yeah. all of these are important steps before it will be actually shown in the screen. And we are interested in measuring each part of this and also the overall part of this. So yeah. when you see something regressed on like a high level level, layout metric, then you need to look deeper, like, okay, which part actually uh, made it worse? Is it like binding to data or like maybe you have more uh, UI elements than needed and uh, this will help you to understand that uh, part?
0: Right. So in your talk, you mentioned that you have separate metrics for create, bind and, and layout. Yes. Which you get. And then you also explain how you even can get more detailed data if you use something like Litho. So for the listeners who might not be
3: familiar with Litho, can you just briefly explain what it is? Yeah, sure. Litho is a declarative UI framework that was developed by Facebook, and that was developed mainly for making newsfeed rendering faster, but then Mm -hmm. it was used for render other parts of the Facebook app. Now almost all the surface in Facebook app is rendered by Litho. And because there
0: are more granular life cycle phases in Litho, you can then also inspect things like the mount and unmount times that yes,
3: a particular yes. UI component takes. Yeah, yeah. so um, even though the user f- mostly sees like a create layout phase, but we can measure like a, the measurement part of the layout and the actual layout, layouting and mounting and how much it took, like um, instantiating this mount content and all this kind of low-level information.
0: When your regression is detected, then you bisect back to the commits that introduced it. Why don't you just run all the benchmarks at land time and then block if something seems to have regressed?
3: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Theoretically, you can run benchmarks on every commit that's developer puts up to the master and that is not feasible because running benchmarks is very expensive. First, you need to run it on real device because that will be more representative of mm-hmm. how that code piece of code is actually running on the user's devices. And then you need to do multiple iterations and trials so that the the result can be averaged and all the statistical errors are t- taken out.
0: Yeah, I guess like the succinct answer, and we've heard this in quite a few talks given by Facebookers here today and yesterday, is it doesn't work at Facebook scale. <laughs> <laughs> Our benchmark suite runs on a time-based schedule. So basically means we run it, I don't know, maybe once an hour, maybe every half hour, something like this. And then if we can detect a regression in there, then we go back in time and try to find only this particular benchmark that has regressed and find the culprit of this one. So what actually happens when a regression is detected like
3: this? So when regression is detected, the, there is a task created mm-hmm. and the task will describe like which metric has decreased like de- Regressed and also, by how much right, and then the task will be assigned to the owner of the commit that actually caused that that regression, and the interesting thing is here is the benchmark system doesn't like bug you or force you to uh, do something about it it's more about like giving you information that um, and it's up to product developer to do. Uh, action on it so obvious two actions are like okay this was not intended and they can revert it or this was expected overhead and then okay like we need this feature and this is somewhat trade-off that uh, we are uh, comfortable with and then like can just leave it as it is. Yeah that makes sense and what happens if a metric actually improves? Yeah this is actually a good point We also run bisecting when something improves, and then we also create a task that says, hey, this metric improved because of this commit that you created, which is like not actionable, but it's just like... mm, A nice
0: confirmation of your work.
3: Yes, (laughs) yes, it it gives you like a good, like a feel-good sense that, oh, I... No, no, like this change actually improved the performance. As long as it's actually expected. I guess you could have these moments where you just make a code change that
0: serendipitously then improves your metrics, but yeah. you didn't actually aim for that. Yeah,
3: like, uh, or you did a refactor and all of a sudden the, the, there is improvement in metrics because you are like running less code probably. Yeah, precisely.
0: Okay, thank you so much, Aziz. I will make sure that a link to your full talk and the slides are in the show notes so people can check out the entire thing.
3: Yeah, Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: And now I've got Pasquale and Andy with me here. Thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks for having us. Can you quickly introduce yourselves? I mean, we've had Pasquale on the last podcast episode, or maybe the one before, depending
2: on when I actually release this. But which teams are you two on? Uh, my name is Andy. I'm on the Android UI Frameworks team. Uh, the main thing we work on is Litho, which is an open source UI framework.
4: And I'm Pasquale. I work with Andy in the Android UI Frameworks team as well.
0: And I should probably probably know, because I worked with you two together in that team just last year, But let's talk a bit about threats, you just gave a very excellent talk about threats on Android or threading on Android. And it was very code heavy. So let's talk more about the concepts and then send people off to your slides if they want to learn more. But can you just one of you
2: tell me why you would want to use threats at all in a mobile application? Uh, So there are two main reasons. The uh, first one is getting stuff off the UI thread. So if you want to keep your app nice and smooth, you really want to be uh, doing expensive work not on the UI thread. And the second one is for performance. So you can use threads to do some work ahead of time without blocking the UI thread. Or you can uh, try to split up work and do it across multiple threads in parallel and use all the cores that are available to you on the phone. Right. Then on Android,
0: you have these concepts of messages, message queues, handlers and loopers. Is there a quick way to just say what all of these different components mean?
4: Yeah, I mean, they just implement a message queue pattern to communicate between threads. Yeah, in the talk, we discuss how this is actually implemented and how a lot of the other primitives in Android are really just layers around this we also touch on how coroutine channels are basically doing the same thing as well
2: oh yeah can you elaborate on this a bit more what coroutine channels are so the the basic idea with coroutine channels is they define different semantics for how you want to communicate between threads and what kind of back pressure you want to implement so the default like message queues in android so not coroutines are like the equivalent of the unlimited style channels where you can have a queue that it grows unbounded. Uh, And this is really nice because uh, when you're posting to those message queues from the main thread, you're guaranteed not to be blocking. It's actually like a pretty big problem if you have some architecture where if your queue gets big enough, you start blocking because that means in normal use of the application, you might not see it. But then when users are out there using your app, they, when their phone is maybe already in a bad state, it now gets even worse because you're now blocking the UI thread trying to push stuff to a queue. Yeah. So, it's a
0: conceptually really nice model to think about because there are fewer worries you really have, at least during development, but then when it hits production, then you see all these cases popping up.
2: Right. And one of the things we cover is just that there are trade-offs to all of these. So for the unlimited one, obviously you can just grow that queue unbounded and then you might crash for out of memory. So it's you have to be pretty careful about what kind of semantics you want to, to use.
0: Yeah, so you talked about conflated channels as one of the alternatives there. What are they?
4: So a conflated channel is a very simple channel where a sender can send as many messages as it wants without ever blocking. But then if there was already a message in the channel, instead of queuing the messages up, the new message just entirely replaces the old message. This is one way of implementing back pressure, if you want, where... You, are, uh, you have the certainty that the queue doesn't grow because it's only one element, and that right. the sender will never really be uh, behind more than one message. At the same time, of course, you're dropping messages, so that might not be ideal, depending on what you're trying to do. And I- was a-
2: oh, Yeah. I kind of like to, there's an analogy to how uh, Android delivers touch events, which is, I mean, it's just trying to send a stream of touch events Mm -hmm. from the hardware, but then you'll just drop the events that the UI thread isn't able to pick up on. It's not like it goes and makes you process every single touch event that happened while your UI thread was blocked. So that's effectively what... Android does in that circumstance.
0: As someone who spends a lot of time in LockCAD, you see this quite a lot. If your device, because you are developing, is locked up in some way, then you will start getting messages of drop touch events yep. that happen on Yeah, exactly. So there was another term which I found really fascinating. I hadn't heard it in this particular context of a rendezvous uh,
4: channel. W- what does that one do? So this is another type of channel where basically you want to synchronize the sender and the receiver meeting when the message is available and the receiver is ready to receive it, which is again great because this basically means that the sender will not start doing any other work until the receiver is ready to receive the message that was already produced.
0: Yeah. So where are all these terms are defined? Is this part of a particular library? Is that the the Kotlin one or where, where do they all come these from? These all
4: defined in the Kotlin coroutines library. Okay, fantastic. So then you talked
0: a bit about working ahead of time. So when is that actually something that you might want to do in a
2: mobile application? So, I mean, you want to do it if you're ever able to do it. So I guess the question yeah. is, when are you actually able to do it? That's a better and, way of phrasing yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and you're able to do it if you have the inputs to that piece of work early. So, one of the things that we try to do is, like, if there's maybe some part of the UI that's not going to change based on the network response, you could theoretically move that forward to be calculated during the network response. Right. How did she actually implement this?
4: So, for example, Lito has this ability of computing layouts ahead of time, Mm -hmm. and we use that all the time um, in our Facebook app. So, what happens is that if Lito is currently computing a layout on a background thread, but then the UI thread suddenly needs it, say because RecyclerView on bind view holder gets invoked for the item that, that is represented by that layout, we actually need to have the UI thread wait on that layout to be ready. We started with this very interesting implementation of just letting the UI thread redo the work, and then we moved to having a future instead that mm-hmm. would block... The UI thread until the background thread was done processing the layout. But then we also had to implement the uh, priority inheritance mechanism that we described in the talk because the background thread was running at a lower priority compared to the UI thread. And that meant that the layout of the background thread was taking too long. So we would end up waiting on the UI thread way too long compared to just doing the layout on the UI thread itself.
0: Yeah, this brings me to one of the most mind-blowing parts of, of your talk which was about oem optimizations which can really sp- throw a spanner in the work when it comes to this whole threat prioritization game can you quickly talk about the oem stuff that is going on there
2: yes i mean this really depends on the oem involved uh most of this i've learned from other people that are at facebook had worked at oems and implemented some of these things oh, so yeah, that's a
0: good source of information <laughs> for these kind of things yeah
2: so some of these uh the, the, the general idea behind the optimizations is that OEMs are incentivized to try to make apps behave better on their phones yeah. than on other phones so that people are like, wow, this phone's awesome. And so they try to come up with these tricks under the hood to uh, make apps feel better. And one of the ways that they do that is by giving special treatment to the main thread. So either boosting its priority beyond what Android would normally give it. Or uh, one of the ones I think is really interesting is giving the main thread an affinity to certain better cores Mm -hmm. so that even if you have two threads that have the same priority, the main thread might execute its work faster because it's pinned to a core that's running at a higher frequency than another thread.
0: And that means if you want to delegate work to a background thread, it will always be disadvantaged over the UI thread because it's just a slower core that it runs on.
2: Yeah. And I mean, we're not exactly clear how disadvantaged it becomes because it really depends on the phone and what optimizations they happen to have added at that time. But it is kind of an interesting thing to think about that's happening behind the scenes.
0: So you ended up with this idea of work transfer between the different threads. How does this work for Litho? Yeah.
4: So this is where we ended up landing with our futures implementation. We noticed that even raising the priority of the thread executing the future sometimes was, mo- was not enough. And on the other hand, we really wanted the uh, background thread and the UI thread to parallelize the work as much as possible, which meant that having one of the two threads just wait on the other was not really an ideal solution for us. So, Lita is declarative, which means that we can uh, very easily pause the work and move the work to another thread and yeah. resume it there. So that's exactly what we ended up implementing. Our future can be post and can be resumed on another thread, which means that in the situation I was describing before, where the UI thread is a layout immediately, mm-hmm. instead of just waiting, it takes over the layout from the background thread. The background thread starts immediately calculating a new layout and the UI thread can just finish the work itself.
0: This is actually fantastic it 's one of those concepts we talked about in one of the very early episodes of this podcast about litho and sections and having immutable data and all the benefits that you can derive from this, like in this case that you are able to just safely transfer the, the state between different threads also this slide has a very appropriate gif of step brothers, and for that reason alone I think like it's worth watching the actual recording of the talk and and then lastly, I feel like. Many of these things you have found out, especially when it comes to things behaving differently on different phones, it seems like so important that you actually have ways of measuring these things in production and not just rely on individual test cases and emulator data. So how do you collect these things?
2: Yeah, one, one of the really interesting things that we discovered as we were trying to collect data for this talk was uh, we were using SysTrace to collect threading information and try to collect information about CPU frequency. Yeah, And one of the things when you're collecting SysTrace data is that it has to be plugged into your computer so it can pull it off the phone. Mm-hmm. And this actually would put the phone into a state where it thinks it's charging, and so it treats the cores very differently from how it would normally treat them. So we were finding that all of our data was like pretty much useless when we were actually trying to SysTrace it off the phone. So... It is. It can be very difficult to collect some of this this information, but the tools that we try to use are uh, SysTrace, which shows you states of different threads. We have some internal tools at, at Facebook, but I would promote uh, Uber has this tool, Nanoscope, which is kind of a custom ROM that gives you hooks into what the system is doing that you wouldn't normally have. Mm-hmm. You're able to see things like I.O. and threads and Lots of interesting stuff.
0: And might be worth plugging Profilo here, which is a library we have for taking production traces from applications. So you can actually see what's going on in your release application. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for joining me here. And enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you so much for having us.
2: Yeah, thank you, Pascal.
0: Okay, Mio. So this is the first time you've actually heard anything about the talks because as far as i'm aware you weren't at droidcon this year no i missed it i was um somewhere okay well and right now these are actually the only artifacts that still exist on the internet of these talks which is quite sad but at least we can discuss them so about aziza's talk about benchmarking what f- did you find interesting there
1: Oh, tons. And I mean, I think he probably explained a lot more in his talk, so it would have been great he to see He definitely did.
0: So I, I should mention this again, I did this in the last episode, but all of these interviews were basically meant to be teasers for the actual talk, which is why I mentioned, hey, check out the full talk after every single one, and no, you can't. So uh, it's a bit unfair to actually tease you with a full talk, but sadly, at the moment at least, this is all we have.
1: Yeah, so I can kind of speak from also what I know happens at Facebook for my time here is that I'm very happy the creators behind Litho are doing this stuff because the amount of work that goes into not just setting up benchmarks, that's that's like 1% of the work, but setting up the infrastructure and tooling to be able to effectively like measure and be sure about the data that is super noisy that comes out of these benchmarks and be able to make decisions on it. Like that's the work of, probably like hundreds of engineering years it's a lot and um you probably won't it probably won't be worth it for anybody to set this up on their own uh but it is worth it to use a framework like litho where that has been it has been tested and optimized using this kind of stuff for you
0: exactly you won't have a release coming from litho which i'm pretty confident, I can say, which will just completely regress your metrics because nobody had actually tested this properly, benchmarked it properly, or used it in production and looked at the data. All of this is done for you by using a library like Litho, which has a ton of coverage.
1: Yeah, and the second thing is I wish I had this. (laughs) Um, The tooling around this and the ability to be sure that I'm not regressing performance is... I mean, it's really, it's what you get from unit testing of not regressing regressing logic, but for like UI rendering performance, which is, has just been historically and still is for, for most of the community, uh, incredibly hard to
0: test. It really is. When I check out a data structure library in Rust, for instance, on GitHub, I'm very happy when I see there is a benchmarks folder in the repository because I can be sure at least someone is looking at how this performs from one release to the other. But I've never seen anything like, like this for a UI components library.
1: Right, but performance testing a data structure library is trivial. It's not trivial, there, but it's semi-trivial compared to, hey, you testing the performance of a UI library. Absolutely, yeah. Which is running on a constraint device, which is a phone, and it depends on so many factors, like the the kind of the load on the phone currently, the battery life of it, what year class it is, what memory class it is. Um, how worn down is the
0: flash storage? And so
1: yeah, on. like the network of it currently. There, there's so many things that go into this. Like how long has the phone been alive since it was booted? All of those kinds of things um, impact the performance so this kind of impacts the noise you get from your tests because there's so many factors uh, that uh, impact the performance you'll get a different result running the same code every single time you run it and you need incredible infrastructure to one run these tests a ton of times but also to filter out and detect what is noise and what isn't and that's just not something you need when say benchmarking a hash table
0: exactly I still find it remarkable when I look at a graph for an operation that takes tops a few milliseconds and I can see a graph that is actually stable, where you can see oh, I've regressed here, or hey, I've improved my performance here. Because if you just try to do this trivially, write this on your own, run it on a real device, it's almost impossible oh, to yeah. get a proper metric of the I've done this a ton this.
1: of times where you like, so Systrace was mentioned in both these talks, and it's a fantastic tool, but well, it's, it's a pretty good tool. Uh, it, it shows a lot of great information. It's incredibly hard to actually read. Um, but even if you know how to read it, the information it gives you is different every time. You run it one frame and it says, well, that took 18 milliseconds. Then you run it the next time and it took 7 milliseconds. You didn't do anything different.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How are you supposed to debug that? Like, th- there are ways, but in the end it's just super, super noisy and really hard to get right.
0: And this brings us very nicely to the second talk, where to me at least, and I also mentioned this in the interview, the most fascinating aspect was that of OEMs and how devices behave very differently in different circumstances that are very hard to anticipate. For instance, if it's on battery, suddenly the cores are behaving differently. (laughs) Definitely, definitely.
1: I mean, the OEMs and the developers of the OS, as well as the developers of the apps, have have so many different incentives right and the oems aren't doing anything wrong in this case i think it's so easy to blame an oem and say like hey like why why did they do this this is this is stupid or whatever or this is the wrong choice well that's the wrong choice given your biases Uh, like they probably made the correct choice and like yeah this might be putting the main thread locked to like the um, high CPU, even though you know your app does most of the intensive work on a background thread. So you're like, oh, this manufacturer made a bad choice. Like, no, they probably made a bad choice for you, but they they made the best choice for the masses because a lot of apps are single threaded and don't actually care about putting anything on the background. Yeah,
0: thread. they are optimizing for the eighty or even ninety percent cases. And the remaining 10 then have to jump through some additional hoops. And this is not different to how we do things. You can be pretty sure that the news feed, which most people will use, gets more attention proportionally than something you find way deep under your bookmarks page.
1: Right. And this goes, I mean, this is interesting. I think uh, we could talk about this and take up a bunch of examples for a long time. But I think you can see this in more than just performance, uh, where Basically, app developers might do common mistakes, and the OEM, obviously, to get the best user experience for the end users, tries to fix it on the OS level or the OEM level. And I remember back to days when like, the camera API for Samsung would uh, return an uh, image that's rotated according to EXIF data. And this is because, like, developers wouldn't handle EXIF data correctly. Yeah. So Samsung fixed it on their part, and they did the right thing.
0: At the problem the time, is nobody else did it. And right, nobody else did it. This uh, weird bifurcation in the platform. Yes.
1: So you get these problems, but in the end, like, Samsung's phones probably worked better uh, because of this. So it's good for the end user. It creates headaches for us as developers, but. We have to look at like the the OEM has customers and they're doing the best thing for the customers, not for the developers. And I think that's the right choice.
0: Yeah. Still understandable why Android developers are prone to a bit more whinging than the iOS counterparts. Yes. Because these things just do not exist in an ecosystem where there is only one device manufacturer. Correct. And I believe this is all we have for this very last episode of the decade. So, Mio, once again, thank you so much for jumping in here as a one-off co-host again. Well, I, I can be back anytime. <laughs> I might make use of this in the future. Please do. As always, if you've got any questions or feedback, send a tweet to at InsideFBMobile or an email to mobilepodcast@fb.com. We are also on Instagram with the same handle, that is InsideFBMobile. And as ever, ratings and reviews, especially the five-star reviews in the Christmas time, are very much appreciated. Send them always and we will be very happy. And I believe this is everything I've got for you. So until next time, this has been another episode of the Inside Facebook Mobile Podcast. Happy holidays, everybody. Take care. Happy New Year's.
1: So this is fine.
0: I mean, you can you can uh, hear the difference yourself. As soon as you move just over here, it's basically gone. Okay. Which is good, but also there is still a bunch of background noise, and we have... Despite the nice foams that we now have here, it's, it's still not exactly perfect. Yeah, I think this is also quite interesting. If you um, track the performance on something like the profile header, and you see it regresses... Basically tells you nothing. It's what? just like fuck, shit is wrong. Investigate, and then it's down to using your tool of choice for actually digging into what regressed here. I think he he also mentioned that they can track at least some parts of it, so they can sh- show you is it the mounting that's slow, is it the layout that's slow, that kind of helps you guide your investigation then. But yeah, but I I think
1: a uh, thing to that's important here as well. This is made around like a million times easier uh due to kind of the component model otherwise you have like you have a million different ways this could get this component could trigger some form of update and it can go through so many different ways like oh wait it's slow when you set text from here or because of this and when you set text together with set color or (laughs) something like that this is just like no it always does the same thing in bind always does the same thing in layout like you, the possibilities is so much lower, so you can actually get good metrics on this Let's and check. debug things.